Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Diamond Styles, and I am the master chef, cooking you up something succulent and divine. It's your boys out here, and we are serving hot talk and cool iced tea. And I'm Mia Mix, here to set the tone and make sure the mood is right. So come on in and get comfortable. Pull up a chair, have a seat. You can even take your shoes off. Wait, not if your feet is down. <laughs> oh, hell no. Welcome, Welcome to Marsha's Plate. The time has come for you to be the change you want them to be, yeah. No more running around filled with all hypocrisy, yeah. It starts from the inside, it spreads wide, and everything will be alright. Join the conversation. Hashtag Marsha's Plate. Oh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We want to hear what you guys have to say. You can also help us build community by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash Marsha's Plate. By contributing to this podcast, you help us continue our powerful work to change culture one episode at a time. So let's get started. So I have something really special for y'all. I have been looking forward to this moment for, uh, shit, it's been about uh, two months? Yes. About two months? Yeah. Um, since, you know, this author's debut book came out. And so, you know, I've been just uh, busting at the scene for this to happen. So today, what I have for y'all is George M. Johnson. Do you like to be called Matthew? Yeah, I mean, my whole family still calls me Matthew. They don't, nobody in my family family calls me George. Um, okay. But I'm fine with Matthew. Okay, I'm a guy you Matthew. But the author name, when you look up the book, is going to be George M. Johnson. He is a writer, an activist based out of New York. He has written articles from you know, Essence, BuzzFeed, Teen Vogue, and so on and so on and so on about race, gender, and so many things. But this particular book is his debut book. Um, and how I got introduced to you is, of course, um, I'm a YouTuber. So, of course, I got introduced to you through Grapevine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Grapevine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so... You know how the how Grapevine is, um, you know, structured. There's all these kind of rotating panelists that come on, and and you know, if you are a fan of the show, um, even in their um, faults, you there are some people who are just really stand out. Their brilliance just stand out, and you, for me, are one of those people because you just have some really sharp analysis about things, and you really. You know, I can tell that you're a fighter like me. So, you know, you go head to head, you know, well, whatever. And I love that about you. So that's all, that's what that's what made me resonate with you. And then I start following you on Twitter. And I was like, oh, I saw you start advertising that you had a book coming out. I was like, OK, so I'm going to have to look it up. So George M. Johnson, a.k.a. Matthew, um, thank you for the, coming to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I told you before we got started, I was like, I was excited. Like, 
yes, like very excited. A little nervous, but I was excited. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so don't be nervous. We cool. We cool here. Um, so the book is called All Boys Aren't Blue, right? Right. And for me, it is like a black queer boy's memoir. Um, and we just really don't have this. Like it, it, when I think about, you know, me reading and trying to find stories that um, reflect things that I experienced when I was younger um, in queer life. And I just, we, there's just no books that come to mind that, um, that, you know, feels the space that this actually, this, this book feels. Yeah. And so does that feel good? It is, it's overwhelming at times only because like, I think going into it, like I had two friends who had already written memoirs, uh, Darnell Moore and Michael Arsenault. And I like, so, hey Darnell. Yeah. So it was like, they had already done well and kind of like, I guess like broke, not broke the seal because like queer memoirs exist, but I feel like for our generation, because they're kind of younger, um, black queer men, it was like, okay, like the doors have kind of been open. Like they, they've now shed some light. I'm like, okay, I kind of want to tell my story, um, but I want to do it young adult, uh, which, you know, it eliminates a lot of the stuff that happened between 21 and 35, because that's a whole nother book that I write at some uh -huh. other time. That, <laughs> you know, that'll be a lot of other tea spilled. People would be like, wow, you have lived a life. But for this book, it was like, I primarily was like, you know what, my focus is black children, specifically black queer children. And Toni Morrison said, if it's a book that you want to read and hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And I was like, there still is no book for, for the boy in me that has not told that story. And I was like, I need to be the one to tell that story that gets it into the hands of those kids, those teens who are struggling with identity, struggling with their blackness, struggling with their queerness, the intersection, and making sure that they had a resource tool that I didn't have. Furthermore, if you exist in our community, then you know it's just a lot of broken people. Yeah. And they needed this book too. Like there are, you know, the 60 year olds and 50 year old queer, queer people who never got a chance to publicly be queer or had their whole lives decimated by the HIV epidemic and the intersection of the crack epidemic. Like literally you're talking about a whole 20, 30 year chunk of their lives just gone where they lost yeah. friends, lost all their friends, funerals yeah. every week. And it's like, I can't even imagine what it was like to survive that type of crisis and still not feel seen. Um, and so the book was also for all of those queers who, you know, wanted to know that something was gonna happen with the next generation and that we were listening and that we were, you know, we understood that and we acknowledged their presence. And even if the world still was unwilling to, to give them space to tell them that they exist, that this book will now be out there so people know that they existed, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that was like what all went into me deciding to be like, you know what, like I'm gonna write it, but I'm gonna write it this way. Um, a lot of times with memoirs, they give you the experience, but sometimes they don't give you the thoughts. And I was like, I'm gonna also let you know what I was thinking. And I think that is what is, is making so many people resonate with this because they're like, oh my God, like it's not just about the double dutching. It was also about the processing of safety. 
it wasn't just about the fact that I knew I was different. It was also the fact that in my daydreams, I was only a girl. Like mm. I could say I'm different and I can tell you my experience of being called a faggot and all those things. But when I then tell you what I was processing in my mind, it becomes a whole other story with mm. context and with like, wow, like, oh, you were a child processing very adult things. That Which resonates in, in this time because we have, you know, people like um, Zaya Wade, who is 12, talking to her parents, talking to her parents and going through this whole process. And people are literally saying, that's too young. And da 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 When I'm like, yo, y'all wasn't thinking about stuff when y'all were 12? <laughs> Maybe not like you thinking of it like, like as an adult, but at 12, there were some sexual Absolutely. Happening. Absolutely. Identity things happening. And you juxtapose it against the seven or eight year old that you see at the protest. So they can understand why they're protesting. They can understand racism. They can understand police brutality. They can understand all these things. But you're telling me this 12 year old can't understand what what they're feeling and what's going on in their body and can't process their sexuality and their gender identity. But they can process at six and seven, eight years old to be on a bullhorn fighting for their lot. Like, you know what I mean? Like, again, it's like. Is it Uchiwali or is it one mic? Ain't that what they say? Like, you know, like, yeah. and it's like, we know why y'all say, oh, that's too young. But it's like, if kids aren't too young to understand racism, like you got Sesame Street teaching racism, right? Then they are not too young to understand what is going on with their identity, what is going on with their, um, their gender, their sexuality, and those thoughts that they're processing. And I often say, like, just because you don't talk to them about it doesn't mean they're not thinking about it. And your, your inability as an adult to not talk to them about it means that they're going to have to do trial and error to figure it out on their own. When you could be having those conversations with your children and helping them get there and also helping yourself get there. Yep. You're listening to Houston's own MP Trans 101. Now listen, I know that what is basic Trans 101 for me could just be the beginning for you. So this is for your basic ass. basic for me in this life could be just the beginning for you. children today we are going to talk about sexual orientation gender identity and age i think it's really important in the midst of the conversation with george to discuss this simple basic concept in the true spirit of trans 101 and discussing basic googleable things let's review something that we have talked about over and over and over again Gender identity and sexual orientation are not the same things. Gender identity is who you go to bed as, and sexual orientation is who you go to bed with. Sexual orientation is about who you are attracted to, what gets your blood boiling in the sexual way. Gender identity is how you want to present yourself to the world. So homosexuality, heterosexuality, bisexuality, pansexuality, asexuality, all these things are about who you are orientated 
to have sex with, sexual orientation. Gender identity is a personal conception of one's own gender. Gender identity is nearly always, in most instances, self-identified. And it's a combination of inherent, extrinsic, and environmental factors all combined. So now that we have covered that for the millionth time, let's talk about age. Most children typically develop the ability to recognize and label gender groups such as girl, woman, feminine, boy, man, masculine, between the ages of 18 and 24 months. Most also categorize their own gender by three years old. However, because of gender stereotypes and how they are reinforced, some children learn how to behave in ways that bring them the most reward, despite their authentic gender identity. At ages like five or six years old, most children are rigid about their gender stereotypes and preferences. These feelings typically become a little bit more flexible with age. Now, understand that gender identity and expression are related, but they are different concepts. A child's identity isn't always indicative of one particular gender expression, and a child's gender expression isn't always indicative of a child's gender identity. Diversity in gender expressions and behavior may include a little girl wanting to stand up and pee, a little boy's aversion to wearing, you know, boy clothes, stereotypical boy clothes. It could be a strong desire to play with boys' toys as opposed to girls' toys or vice versa, depending on the gender assigned at birth. Now, with sexual orientation and age, that age is a little bit more wide-ranging. While most the majority of people's sexualities manifest around puberty, there are a lot of individuals who say that they had sexual urges before puberty and they had attraction to the people that they were attracted to early on. This sexuality expression could manifest in various ways, whether you plan hide and go get it before puberty, humping and kissing and making out and doing all that with maybe your play cousin or your friend or your cousin, because <laughs> I know no better. I hear and feel your judgment coming through your ears and your brain sending judgmental waves to me. You not about to make me act like y'all wasn't getting hump by your same age cousins just like I was. Don't judge me. But anyway, also with sexual orientation, sometimes sexual orientation can change or adjust at a later age based on experience and exploration. AKA somebody got turned out, Ow. Because of this wide range of age that sexual orientation can manifest, it really brings a lot of confusion about whether or not you can be born gay or you choose to be gay, blah, 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 because gay people saying, I was born this way, baby, I was born this way. And straight people is like, mm, no, mm-mm. And Christian folks are like, mm, that's a demon. Praise, oh, demon, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. No. Mm -mm. But honestly and truly, whether it's a choice or not, it really doesn't matter. Because in the words of the evangelist, internet influencer, goddess, Tabitha Brown, 
You can do whatever you want because that's your business. Like, so like that. Lastly, when we are talking about kids exploring their sexual orientation and discussing it and having great dialogue about it and their identity, exploring identity and expressing agency over their bodies and agency of how they identify with the world to the world. We're not talking about them going out and doing adult things. We're not talking about them going out and doing hooking up with people. That's adult stuff. We're, we're not talking about sex in regards of them going to have sex. Oh, they're 12 years old. They should be old enough to go have sex. No, we're talking about they should be old enough to talk to their parents and a responsible adult to their brothers, their sisters and people in their lives to express themselves about what they are feeling about sexuality, what they are feeling about who they are attracted to, what they are feeling about their identity and how they want to present themselves to the world. They should have the freedom to discuss that in a healthy environment without being repressed. We're not talking about they're old enough to consent to sex. They are not. We are talking about creating supportive environments for your children to express what they are thinking without being reprimanded, without being traumatized about what they are feeling about their sexual orientation or gender identity, creating a safe space for that open dialogue prevents a lot of trauma in your home. It prevents a lot of trauma out in the world. It prevents a lot. It prevents the world from teaching your children about things in the wrong way. It prevents their peers from teaching them things without context or examining consequences. It also prevents the fear and the shame of them coming to you when wrong things happen to them. You give them the room to trust you by trusting them with their own evaluation of their bodies, of their sex, of their gender identity, of their sexuality, of their sexual orientation, of their experience. Give them room to talk about it. Share your experience. Talk them through it. So they're not just navigating the world with confusion and alone, figuring shit out because you can't understand the concept of them having agency. Don't own them. Lead them. And that's Trans 101. Oh my God, I want to thank all of our new patrons this week. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So not only are you helping to sustain this particular podcast, you know, I also donate to other podcasts, I donate to other organizations. I have my finger on the post of the community and I know a lot of grassroots organizations that are doing great work out here. So you're not only helping to sustain us, you're helping to sustain other people in a community because I put my money where my mouth is. 
you know, that's just the kind of bitch I am. Community is fuck. <laughs> so thank you. I really, really appreciate you. And if you have not become a patron, why have you not? You can donate as low as a dollar a month. It doesn't matter. Anything helps. Please. Do I have to play Sir McLaughlin and show you puppies? Like, what do I have to do? Do I have to do resort to what the white people do to get you to give them money? <laughs> All righty. Anyway, thank y'all. And the Patreon and PayPal link is at the bottom. Back to the show. One of the things that I love is how how you depicted your family. Even some of the bad situations and even some of, and it was mostly good to me. Um, it, it was a very loving situation because I know a lot of times the narrative for queer, queer people coming up is very, you know, downtrodden, like my mama <laughs> kicked me out and they were mean to yeah. me, da, 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 da. But this, what you, yes, I had some assholes in my family, but most of the time, I had some loving people. I had some loving black people. I had some loving black women. Um, you know, we had a big mama type person in our family who yep. um, that remind. I don't want to say that I had a, a nanny, but because my grandmother was the was the anti was the homophobe in in my particular family. It was okay. my grandmother. Um, but I had her aunt, which we uh, we call our aunt Joe. She was the one that would make up girl names for me, <laughs> and right, so right. she was she was that kind of version. And she had some messiness about her. But I knew that if I um, if I came to her house, I wouldn't be shunned away. Yeah, she's yeah. she's giving me a blanket out of the linen closet for yeah. me to that kind of stuff. Yeah. So when I when, and then I have cousins that no matter yeah. how disconnected our life is yep. maybe they will be right there to fight for me like um rolla um, russell <laughs> <laughs> and so you know so hearing these stories hearing about this i was like oh wow that I, that resonates with me not exactly the same but definitely have these people that i know that will cut for me no matter what no yep. matter how gay i got <laughs> no matter how queer i got they okay. family and it was enforced by adults and by just how we interact with each other as children. So tell me how how important was it to depict that kind of that kind of black family? Yeah, you know, I, I'm thankful that during my writing process, I had the um, fortunate opportunity to have a writing partner, basically a person who I write with all the like we we're both writers and we write together. Like we'll come together and write, even though we're not writing on the same thing. We're writing. He's, uh, they are working on their project. I'm working on mine. Um, Hari Ziad, who um, is an abolitionist and taught me, one of the first people to teach me about abolition, uh, but not just about abolition in the sense of, well, I'll say taught me about abolition in the sense of prisons. It taught me about abolition in the sense of like um, structures. But then I decided to take it a step further and start to kind of like create my own space of exploring abolition in terms of social abolition and in terms of familial abolition, in terms of how to not, like how to have empathy for the abuser, still being able to hold them accountable, but also being able to understand cyclical violence and being able to understand the, the circumstances of their existence. Also, mirror many of the circumstances of my existence 
And so that is how I got to that space of being able to write about each person in the book with empathy, even the worst abuser um, I, I have empathy for and love for. Um, in particular, of course, there was a um, situation with my uh, older cousin who, whose name we changed in the book. I don't remember what name I changed it to, but okay. for all intents and purposes, uh, we'll just uh, call him Peter right now, which it may be Peter in the book. I don't remember. But I had an older cousin who uh, was 17 and I was 12 and uh, molestation happened. And it's one of those things where it was like, how do I like and, and he's dead now he's dead so it was like i can't get justice from like a dead person i can't get accountability from a dead person right so there was no need for me to uh villainize him like what what do i get from villainizing him what do i get from trying to punish him in the afterlife right the only thing i can do now is tell our story because it is our story tell our story and justice has to look like preventing someone else from going through it mm -hmm. and Justice has to look like teaching others that when you, when, when a queer person like my cousin is harmed in the many ways that my cousin had to face harm, they, or a person just in general is harmed, they at times repeat that violence against someone else. Right. And so I feel, I felt like there was no, the world already doesn't give black people empathy. I have no desire to participate in anti-blackness that the world already the world already has against us. And so I decided to write the story truthful, but also take it just a step further in what empathy looks like because I still existed with this person after it happened. And it wasn't for a while that I even processed it as something that wasn't okay. Um, as someone who was a 12-year-old going through an identity crisis, it, it is hard to juxtapose the fact of like knowing something is wrong and knowing someone is manipulating a situation versus your body saying, this feels right. Like, this feels right because my body is attracted to uh, someone else that is male. And at that time, it was like your body was reacting even though your mind was like, this is not okay, your body was saying, but it feels right. Mm. And so those type of feelings sometimes get hard to like, uh, to figure out and you're a child. So you're literally like trying to figure it out. And I remember before deciding to write that chapter in particular, my family was like, I told my family, you know, cause I was like, I ain't want them to have like, we ain't gonna get a world surprises and y'all be surprised too. So I told them first, like, this is what happened, some things happened, blah, blah, blah. They were like, all right, make sure you tell your uncle wrong. Because they was like, he might blow a gap. Like, we don't know which way he'll go. But what I remember when talking to him, that was what got me to the empathy space because he was like, you got to realize, like, your cousin was you. Like, your cousin was effeminate, and we knew. You know, just like we knew about you. He was like, but your cousin didn't have the love you had. Like, the love you had from your mother and father, your cousin couldn't get from his father even though his father loved you and loved you in his face. And that literally, it just was like, I can't even imagine what that would have felt like for, for him to watch me be loved by his father, knowing we're the same person and him not get that same type of love ever because of that. And it, it just made it all make sense for me, yeah. right? And you know, 
it, it just was no need for me to bash him any worse than the world had already done to him. He was killed because of homophobia. His, his own father didn't love him because of homophobia. What, what desire do I have to, 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 to tear him down even more than the world had already tore him down? So the only thing I could do in this moment was just love him. And I think as black folk, that's what abolition looks like. It looks like love outside of what we're told love has to look like. It looks like justice, not in the form of punishment, not just of a carceral system, but of each other. Right. Um, and that's how I got there with, with those very, very tough moments of how I was harmed by people that I still love. Um, I announced another book deal yesterday. And so there will be a lot more stories primarily of me, Raw, Rasul, Garrett, and my grandmother. Um, but me and Rasul didn't always have the best relationship. Like, it was a lot of abuse for all intents and purposes there. Um, but I love Rasul to death. I really, really do. And there is nothing that anybody can do or say to me that will ever stop me from loving him. And I talk to him, and we have a great relationship now. We have talked about the abuse that he's done to me, and he accepted it and he acknowledges it, and that's what the work looks like. I don't have to hate him because he got it, he gets it. Like, he's like, you know what? I had an issue with my older brother, ab abuse towards me or the abuse I felt, and I played it out on you, and I had no right to do that. Mm -hmm. That's but that's the work we do as a family now, to, to abolish hatred and, and those things, and find empathy for even those uh, situations. All right, I'm long-winded. <laughs> no, 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 you're okay. I like that. I, I, I think it's it definitely come across in that particular chapter where just your, the honesty. So there was, to me, I didn't feel like there was not, there was no excuses being made. It was flat, flat honesty, but there was also a tenderness and an understanding and a a love that was there that that, to me, and when we think about, like you said, abolition, and you know, when we think about the ideas of restorative justice, mm -hmm. I think the foundation of restorative justice has to be that kind of love where we are not only recentering and healing the victim, but we also are trying to restore and heal um, the perpetrator and yeah. bring them out of that behavior in a way that is. Um, that can reacclimate them into a society, into society, into you know healthier relationships. And I think, it, it, are we going to make mistakes in doing that? Absolutely, we are going to make mistakes. We're not going to figure it out. But I think if we are, like you said, not trying to do um, just punishment, shame, punishment, shame, because actually, punishment and shame is the core tenets of like what causes trauma and violence and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so that doesn't heal. It doesn't. Why repeat what, what was done to you that probably forced, caused you to do what was done to me? Like, it just doesn't, again, like, there's no need for me to repeat the cycle of that type of violence. And people will tell you I am very forgiving. I mean, in, in, in the sense that, like, we don't have to be what we once were and we may never be friends, but I, I will not hold a grudge against you. Like, I don't hold any ill will towards people. Like, that is something, and it take a while to get there because some people really do you wrong. You really be like, <laughs> but I don't like to carry that type of energy. Like, I just don't. And so I like to call things out when I see them, address them as is. And I'm also a person who's like, even though it takes me some time, I, I maybe way up in my 
like space when I'm there. But once I come down, I can usually process things. And if I did something wrong, I can easily apologize for things and try to like repair situations that I may have messed up um, because we're all human. And I, again, I have no desire to be perfect. I just have a desire to continue progress. And so that's why I always say it's like, it's progress, not perfection. And a lot of people are looking for perfection out of people. And I, I, I don't have a desire to be perfect. I, I just have a desire to, to progress and, and do the best that I can with the tools that I have. Um, while also adjusting to being the voice of what this is going to be for many people. Yeah. Uh, because I'm the vessel now. And there are some days I'm like, oh, God, like, I'm the vessel for this. Like, I'm the expert. I'm the, you know. And so that's a lot to process some days. Um, but yeah, I have to do it. We are becoming the pillars. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not only yeah. the pillars. Also, that's another thing that resonated in the book. You, there was a range of people, because I think you even said in, in, in some interviews um, that, and, and in the book that it was, um, oh, this just runs in our family. Because it, it ranged from hope all the way to somebody who was closeted. It was so, it, you get what I'm saying? It was so many different yeah, yes. type of queer people. And in my family, it was, I wouldn't say that it was a bunch, but the three <laughs> that we knew, you know, it, it's, it, it was interesting how we interact. I remember I had a, I have a cousin named Felix who was my mother's age. And so when my, when a great, great aunt passed away, my, my aunt Thelma, and we came to her funeral in Chicago, um, everybody prior to me coming, cause I was in transition and, yeah prior to me coming, they were like, oh, you're going to see your cousin Felix for the first time because he had lived in Chicago and I was in Indianapolis. And so I knew based on how they were talking that he had to be some type of queer person. Right. And so um, when I walked into the, um, when I walked into the funeral and we was going to the repast, he was in this lime green men's <laughs> suit, you know, <laughs> just really bright and flamboyant. Right. And and me and him talked and he kind of winked and it was just like an unspoken kind of connection that we had because we knew and it, like he came over and put his hand on my he said they ain't fucking with you are they because i know how you know how this family is yeah. and he kind of just gave this little thing and then i have another cousin like i said it was three who is a little bit more on the masculine side and just just seeing you share all these people, because we all have, both of us have a very different experience. I'm a trans woman. Felix is a more flamboyant gay man. Right. And um, and my cousin Duke is more of a masculine, bisexual yeah. gay man. He identifies as a gay man, but he also has sex with women, da da da, da just a more on the masculine side. And so we, we have very different experiences with our family in regards to how close we are to the patriarch of our family, all that kind of stuff. So it, I love how you depicted that as as these queer pillars um, and how you saw them as a child looking at them. I thought that was yeah. beautiful. There was an interview where you were talking about um, chasing masculinity mm -hmm. um, when you got to, like, go to college. Yes. And, you know, part of that chasing masculinity was you getting into a fraternity. Can you tell me about that experience and how you – you know, how you were chasing masculinity because although I understood that, but because I was going into my trans womanhood, I was okay. running away from masculinity. <laughs> and so, but it, as you continue to talk, even though you were chasing it and I was running away from it, there's a level where we got came together. So explain that. 
Yeah, it was interesting because like, I think at that point it was like, all right, like I'm still not ready to identify as uh, gay at that time. And it was like, in my mind, I was like, well, what can I do to like butcher, I guess, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, you know, fraternity seems like they're like the masculine, most masculine people typically uh, on the campus. It's, I mean, certain fraternities clearly. Are That's the gender bad. thing to do. Right. <laughs> but the, right. Like, it's like if you want to like come off as like patriarchal, strong, tough, like that's like go like pledging. Sign of sports. Right. Right. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, like I think I want to do that. And I, also like, I struggled with making friends because I was a feminist. So like, you know, like really, really masculine hetero dudes wasn't trying to like hang with me. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I, I primarily hung with girls. And so it was like, well, I want to hang with guys and like have friends that are guys, you know what I'm saying? And I was like, you know what? I think I really want to join a fraternity. And um, I had a friend, uh, name is Lawrence. I just talked to him yesterday. Um, he's one of my older brothers in the fraternity, but uh, just by, oh, by three years. And um, we were on this Honda, Camp Honda Campus All-Star Challenge team, which was like Jeopardy for HBCUs that we used to travel every year. And he was an alpha and, you know, I was like, I think I want to be an alpha. And he was like, oh, okay. Like, and we had talked about it, talked about it, talked about it. Nothing really happened. And then like the day before the, um, the line was going to start, it was like the first day of school, uh, January, so second semester, he just was like, do you still want to be out? I was like, yeah. And I got a call and before you knew it, I was online and it was like, okay, this is a lot. Like my whole world got like flipped. Like, you know, like what I thought that semester was going to be, it, it changed But I was like, okay, like I'm going to do this. Um, but it was interesting because like I said, like I think the one thing that I was, I thought I was chasing masculinity, but it was like I was really running directly into what I needed. And it wasn't masculinity so much that I needed. It was that I needed to see that there were other people like myself mm. who also were just black boys or black young men, for lack of a better term, just, you know, trying to figure it out and trying to figure out, like, what do I want to be socially and what do I want to be politically and also, like, I think they were also probably struggling to make friends, too. Like, right? Like, if it's like, I know I can't be the only one because I don't, I don't, quote, unquote, uh, I was always sassy. Like, there, you knew I was queer. Like, <laughs> there was not a way you didn't. The flame was burning. Right. Like, at all times. Like, you could look at old videos of me talk. Like, it, I've always been effeminate, always been, so there was no hiding it. And I had... I would say two line brothers who clearly, clearly you could not tell. Well, you had two line brothers, clearly you could tell, and then two, you, you could be like, oh, maybe, maybe not. But there were two other line brothers you could clearly tell. One in particular that you could clearly tell that, you know, was like, was, was gay. And so, <laughs> again, it was like, I thought I was running away from it and I ran right into it. And it was like, okay. But so in essence, it ended up, making me more comfortable but it also taught me like just like that masculinity wasn't something to like to chase and that like um it was more about like again being who you are and existing in all of these spaces and so uh people get upset i will say people do get upset when i tell the story because they're like oh but like we don't want everybody thinking like you know alpha is like some gay safe haven and i was like 
it's not about whether it's a gay safe haven. What it's about is the fact that men or male presenting people exist as different, like as different things, right? Like the whole ideal of masculinity is bullshit. And so to think that this fraternity's image can only survive if it rests upon masculinity, which we also know has led to many a death, which we also know leads to many abuses and just many other terrible toxic things that harm so many other people in the community, it, it absolutely makes no sense, right? Um, and so, yeah, like it was, in, like I said, that story is always very interesting because I really was like trying to like prove how tough I was. Mm. And it was like, not only in many ways did I prove how tough I was, I also still, I guess, accepted who I actually was. And, and I guess in many ways proved that queer people were tough. I don't know. Like, like that queer people could do, like, that we all, that, like, there are no systems that, like, are created that, like, I guess, like, when you think about, like, the gender construct, it's like, well, this is a man's job. This is a woman's job. And it was like, no, like, it's just a job. And anybody should be able to do it, right? It's like, well, this is a masculine frat or this is a non-man. Like, it's like, no, like, we shouldn't have to create LGBTQ organizations because of homophobia. That's stupid. Like, if y'all are about the mission, the work, community, I exist in community. And there are people like me who exist in community. So you can't tell me you're a community-based organization that is for love for all mankind, but that you also can't accept mankind that fit the, the criteria to get in this org, right? Um, and so I think that's what it ended up being a pushback against was like this whole idea that like the black male image had to look one way. Um, and that's why I'm kind of like, like I said, like I was chasing masculinity and found myself. And now, you know, the, mas uh, the, the fraternity is going to have to accept that the most famous brother is going to be a faggot. And, <laughs> and I'm fine with that. And a lot of them are not. But um, I think okay. now the more announcements, the more book deals, the more TV stuff, you know, my fraternity is going to have to come to terms like, listen, George is not going to stop saying that they're an alpha. So we either got to get, get right or get left, but the fraternity's image is going to be whatever George is. And it's on us to figure out or to shift the world and shift the right and teach the world that, listen, this is what people, like male presenting people look like all of these things and can come in all of these shapes and sizes and identities and colors. And, and that's what we got to, you know, like George is teaching the world, like, listen, it is what it is, but I, I tell everybody, like, I can't wait to get on, like, a red carpet, like, at a Met Gala or something, and, like, have that interview where I can say, like, with, you know, like, with this outfit, with this long train, and, like, you know, and get on the carpet, like, yes, I'm a member of Alpha Bio Fraternity Incorporated. <laughs> I, I cannot wait, because I'm, like, and watch all of the brothers be like, no! Like, I can't wait. <laughs> I'm so excited. When I think about me running away from masculinity, uh, this what this what this book brought for me, and it's similar to what Moonlight did for me as well. The film, um, when I saw Moonlight, there was circumstances that I could relate to because I remember myself as a little boy when I didn't have the language of transness. It's not that I don't believe that I was trans; I just didn't have the language to know what it yep. was. Yep. And there was certain when he was sitting on that beach, when Sharon was sitting on that beach kissing that boy, and 
how the boy was maneuvering and he was like the tender one, like kind of just, you know, just kind of going with the flow and that everything about everything about that, that beach scene was really resonating with me. Everything about when he was a little boy and playing football with the other little boy, those kind of things. And some of the, the, the things in your book, it just really was me looking back and, and, and although I'm running from masculinity, it's not that I'm running from masculinity. I'm running from whatever this transness is rooted in that, that binary construct. And so if I'm trying to dismantle that, if I'm trying to abolish that, as you said earlier, if I'm trying to abolish that, what does that look like internally for me? And what it has looked like in the past 10 years for me is not me just throwing the trans label away and saying, oh, I'm non-binary now or anything like that. It, what it is is knowing that I don't have to run away from my past. I don't have to run away from masculinity. I don't have to run away for the things that created who I am now. I can actually look at those things and appreciate them and understand that that, that had to happen for me to be who I am now. And that's what your book did for me. That's what Moonlight did for me. That's what this new canon of, um, of reflection that we see from your book, from movies, da 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 I think that's what it's doing for me as a tra queer woman, trans queer woman, and letting me look back and say, oh, I remember those days, and not look back on them with dysphoria and dread and shame. Look back on them and say, okay, that was a part, that was a part of my story, and I can accept it. Yep. Yeah. That's the, I mean, I think that's the best way to, to even say that. I think about that all the time, too. Like, um, literally just what you said, like, when I look back at those things, like, no, like, that's okay. Like, it was, like, I had to go through that to get here. Like, I wouldn't be able to write this book and do the work, and the book wouldn't be able to do the work that it was doing if I wasn't the vessel that went through that experience to get to this place. And so it's like, it's not anything for me to be, like, saddened by or ashamed of or I wish I did that different because if I did that different, I may not be who I am today. And so my ultimate goal in a lot of this is, like, I want to prevent the next me and the next us's from having to go through those same things um, because I don't believe that black, like black people in general should have to become like products of trauma, right? Like I don't believe like it should be like, oh, but our traumas make us better. Or like, cause there are some people that really believe like you gotta go through something traumatic to, and I'm like, I don't like that. Like why? Why do we have, why why do we have to go through slavery for us to realize that we should be better? Why do we have to go through Jim Crow to realize we should be better? Why do we have to go through BLM for us to realize like that that makes no like we should not know. Actually we shouldn't have to, right? White people don't have to do that. Nobody else has to go through some type of trauma for their for them to realize like they deserve things or that um yeah, I, and I've hated that that narrative and that lens. And so it's like, listen, at some point we have to get to a place of what does it look like to live in a trauma-free world as a black person? What does it look like to live in a world with no trauma, with no pain, with no, I mean, you're gonna have pain because of like life and death and like other things, but like with no like pain and that and the other ways that we have to face pain. Like, what does it look like for us to not have to think about prisons and not have to think about policing and not have to think about like, what does that look like? Like, how do we decolonize our minds to get to that? that space, um, how do we decolonize the fact that we think that trauma is a necessary part of life? Like, and that trauma is a necessary part of growth. Like, it's not, like, because some people don't heal from trauma ever, and some people die from trauma, and some people like, so that can't be the linchpin of, of 
of how we grow and how we move forward. And so, yeah. So, of course, because this is a trans-centered mm-hmm. uh, show, <laughs> um, we got to talk about hope. Yes. We got to talk about hope. <laughs> so, this particular chapter, Losing Hope, um, is your reflection on your transgender cousin. Yes. And her transition. Yes. And um, for me, this was a love letter to me. Okay. This was, although it was a love letter to hope, (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, you know, when I, I hope that when my little cousins that I love and cherish in my family, when they reflect on who I am in their life, I hope that they can have this kind of reverence for me, that if they wrote a book, I would be a, 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 you know, a chapter in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but reading it, it was definitely, definitely healing for me. It was okay. definitely um, a different, because I don't have, I don't have, I don't think my, the people in my life, they're there yet. Certain ones yeah. are there yet. Yeah. And so, so to, to hear somebody's reflection and, um, and that reverence, it just was, it just was healing. It really just, it's, in a, it's the same way like when you hear D-Wade talk about his child mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, I wish, I wish my dad talked about me like that or I wish um, when I was younger, you know, even though he may have gotten to that point now, but when I was younger, I wish that he was like that, how much healing that was. Just hearing that, um, you know, was powerfully healing for myself. And so reading that chapter. So tell me about why you decided to include um, hope in the book yeah you know it's interesting because i think the more i'm becoming myself the more i think about her um because i'm like i just like i'll have moments where it's like like the moment when i was like i'm really non-binary like i just there are days i just do not wake up and feel feel man see man there are days i wake up and feel woman or see woman or don't feel either. I just feel like I'm here. Like I exist, but I don't have, I don't want to be defined by like a, this or that. And, but it puts me in the mindset of like, damn, like I really wish like hope was here. Cause I could talk to hope. Like, okay, well like, how did you know? Like when was the moment where it was like, this ain't it. Like, I, you know, like something else is going on. You know, I'm feeling different. Like I'm like I'm different, but we feeling a little bit different. You know, like and when was like when did it kick in that you were like, you know what, I'm I got to be me. You know, um, and and to do it so fearlessly, like what what didn't stop you from being fearful of being you? Because I I think about how long it took. I mean, hell, I'm I'll be 35, so it took me much longer than it took Hope. Hope <laughs> just was like a trailblazer in many ways. It's like. Yeah, like, like for real. And I mean, Hope also, like, she had a loving family. So, like, I think that, that played a role in Hope huge feeling comfortable. Role, a huge role. You know, like, because our family was not going to grow. Like, that was not going to happen. Like, Hope's mother, Loretta, had already passed. And my mom was Hope's godmother. And Hope, you know, she was like, ain't nothing. Like, I don't care what Hope dealing with or transitioning through. Like, we here. Like, that's not changing. Um... But I felt it was important to include the chapter because it really gave me, like, that was, like, the only image I had of what I was feeling internally. And as a, as a 
kid who already was only imagining, like, I don't know if I said it in the book or not, but I know, like, even when I used to daydream about myself as an adult, I was an adult woman. Like, I never daydreamed about myself as an adult boy or as an adult male. Never. Like, my daydreams or when I would think about, like, what I would be as an adult, I was a woman in, in that, like a grown woman. And so there was a lot. The only image I had of what that looked like was my cousin Hope. And I felt it was necessary to put that particular part in the chapter because I think it was a great juxtaposition of how I was a black queer child struggling with identity, but also working my way through being effeminate and knowing that being trans wasn't my journey. Um, but still, I was going to be a femme. I was going to be like all these other things, right? And can identify as these things, right? But also then explaining that me and Hope's journeys looked the same at one point. And then we got to a place where it was like, oh, you know what? That's not my journey. And Hope was like, oh, you know what? I got to keep, like, this is my journey, right? Right. And it was important, especially because the book is young adult, for kids to know that, like, don't feel so boxed in to, to a construct. Like, I got to be this or I got to be that. Or does this exist? Or are these feelings valid? I wanted to make sure that people understood these feelings were not only valid for me, but were valid for Hope. and. And not, and, and not to be boxed in in the in the radical boxes too. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, like I, I just again, I'm like I can't even imagine. Like I I have trans friends now, so I know you know what what my trans friends go through now, and like the, the systems we're trying to put into place, and the things that we're trying to do for community, um, as cis people who have to make sure like we're because some of us have more privilege and power. So it's like, we got to make sure that the communities that we um, exist within are also supporting trans people and creating the systems of safety and creating the systems of, um, I was just talking to my friends. I was like, you know, one of the things I want to do is like find a lawyer that works um, in doing uh, name change, the, the, the whole name change process. Because I was like, that's something that so many people have an issue with. And I'm like, if I can be the person that creates some type of funding to do that, then I'll do that because I remember what it was like for Hope going through the name change journey. And I wrote about it a little bit, but like, I remember how much money it cost it. And she was only able to do it because of like a settlement check she had got from like being injured at work or being injured somewhere. So, but it was like, to think like you get settlement money and the only thing that you wanted to do was change your name. That's like, that's just so beyond, like when you think about like what you like, a car, an apartment, uh, a, a Bentley, a Rolls Royce, a, you know, a Rolex. You wanted to change your name. And I think about that all the time now, like, wow. Like, just, like, to go through all that just so you can feel yourself. And for the systems to put such a hurdle in your way to even get to being yourself. Um, and so I was like, this story is necessary, but it was also necessary because I wanted to make sure that even though we were a loving family, the mistakes were there. The mistakes were there because we didn't know. We didn't have, like you, like you said earlier, we didn't, like, you knew you were trans, but you didn't have trans language. We didn't have queer language, so they couldn't talk to me. We didn't have trans language, so we didn't know what we were supposed to say to Hope. Um, everybody, was just, everybody was just figuring it out. We were all literally just like, 
okay, well, was well, Hope changed the name, and everyone was like, okay, well, we'll, we'll call out Hope, like we'll figure it out, like we don't know what's going on, but I, I might still call you Jermaine, but uh, I'm gonna try. And I definitely want to talk about that because I've only had one person reach out to me that felt that it was not okay to use Hope's original name, and I was like, okay. Which was why I was like, I'm going to be very excited when I finally get to talk to someone trans, like, to, who read it and can tell me, like, I felt it was a love letter. I knew it was a love letter. I know how I wrote that chapter. I wrote that chapter with, that chapter literally was the longest to, to write because I had to write it with so much care. And I remember early on, like, talking to my editor, like, I was like, I have to make a decision of whether I'm going to use Hope's um, birth name. But I was like... The difference is that hope was not disposed of by my family, right? So this is not some like me misgendering. This is not some, and hope's story and my story are our story, right? Because it's my memoir and it is important that I explain what my first images of queerness looked like, especially because this book is going into the hands of people who don't have language. And so it's like, I could write it politically correct with all of the stuff that I know now and all the tools that I know now and all the things I know now, or I can write it as it is. And this shit really, really saved and helped a whole lot of people. And so I went that route because one, I know Hope wouldn't give a shit <laughs> because Hope didn't give a shit back then because that wasn't Hope's issue. Hope was like, I'm changing my name, but also like, y'all can call me, listen, y'all love on me. I don't give a shit. Like that shit don't bother her, right? Um, but I did it because I was like, I think it's very, very important that like, the only way that we can learn and grow is if we tell the whole story. And I was like, I don't want to make it seem like we were perfect. And I didn't want to make it seem like, um, yeah, I just didn't want us to, to be perfect. I didn't want the story to be sanitized. And I wanted people to understand this is what it looks like. And this is what it felt like. And this is who I was introduced to. And, you know, I know there are a lot of people who are like, you know, you should never use the dead name. Um, and I totally respect that. And I don't, you know, with friends and with it. But I was like, this story is different. And I was like, I needed, I was uncertain about that component um, in many ways. But what I will say is I have other trans friends, my friend Ashton and other, and they literally, I remember she was like, George, I just want to thank you. She was like, you hit the nail on the head in so many ways. Like with that story about, it was like, it, it, it didn't bother me. It was like, you, it, yes, that's what it looked like. That's what it felt like. They were like, even your story about the daydreaming about being a girl. They, they were like, she was like, I, I loved it. Like, I loved it. And more resounding than not, the story of hope is the one that sticks with most people um, for many reasons. Um, I miss her badly. My family misses her. She was the best storyteller. Um, they was always doing something um, <laughs> in Jersey City. Um, and again, uh, just a tragic life because of, if, if we had systems in place for people who were trans to properly have, to properly have like gender um, surgery and properly have those things, you know, Hope was doing, you know, with the, the, the stories you hear about, like they showed her on Pose, like the back alley, the shots, and the, that, that, that was the only way that Hope could, could go through that. And it poisoned her, you know? And um, I was like, I need to tell this story. And... And I have a right to talk about my cousin because I love her and we miss her. And I was like, and I don't want her story to, to, to die with her. Like, I, 
I, I just felt like it was necessary for me to write it and to write it in that way um, and for people to understand what the mistakes looked like. And I could have changed the name, but why? Like Hope didn't care. And I know Hope would have been, if Hope were here, which spiritually Hope is here, but like if Hope were here in the physical, Hope would have loved it. I know that for a fact. I, for me, it wasn't <laughs> a problem. I, I don't speak okay. for the but for me, I, I thought that it was exactly what uh, when I go to my aunt Joe's house <laughs> with my family, they love on me. I know I'm welcome, but sometimes I'm going to be called my dead name. Yeah. Sometimes. And they're going to stumble through it. They're going to try to fix it. I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm 39 now. Um, okay. I, I went to my, I stayed at my aunt Joe's like a, like a year ago when I went to visit my mom up there and you know, I don't care. I don't care how many years go by. I've been trans since I was fucking 13, 14. Mm. She, she, you know, she loves, she going to give me something to eat, but <laughs> she, that name thing, she's, sometimes she just won't get it. Yeah. And she's probably going to die not getting it. But what, what I, what I, what I loved about the story is that literally that is what happens. Like they were like, my aunt Joe said, I'm going to try to get your name right, but sometimes I'm going to get it wrong. That is literally what she said. And I was like, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it was. And again, I was like, you know, and I said, you know, the interesting thing was I was like, we didn't have language back then. So we didn't even know what a dead name was. And no one, right. I, you know, you didn't, I said, and hope didn't dead the name. Like hope was appreciative of her journey as Jermaine. And Hope didn't look back on that name with angst or with anger or with, and there was never a request like, don't call me that, or I feel disrespected when you, like that never happened. You know what I'm saying? Like, let, let, me, let me give you a little bit of that. So sometimes, okay. even though it's a problem, sometimes okay. we yeah. have to accommodate, particularly with our family, because, because we're sh getting shown the love we almost don't want to ruffle the feathers and just make it a big deal. Cause yeah. I remember being in a situation like, like hope where she's coming home and I don't want to turn this into like, if I'm on the street and a, per a person called me, da, 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 I'm going to go off. But because this is my family and because they do show me love and there's a tenderness there, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, give them a little bit more room for the mistakes that yeah. I wouldn't give a person on the street. Absolutely. So I remember saying things like, oh, it don't matter to me. It really did matter. I wanted you absolutely. to get it. Absolutely. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. But you I, know, I, I do understand why you would. Um, yeah. It was a loving situation. And it was one where we were doing the best we can. And I will say like, by the like by the time hope and just like I said in the in the story I think the the I, I, we all used to go to the store together we did that was you like had, our, yes we did all, like, we used to go to the store together and that would be like our time and now I don't remember if I said this part in the story but I remember when I was younger not super young I was like maybe thirteen or fourteen and she told me that cover cover girl doesn't cover boy you did. <laughs> I was like, I don't remember if I said that part. And so, but like, she was, she already knew who I was. And I, so even if the family wasn't having those little conversations with me, she was already like letting it known, like, I see you. Right. We're going to be good. Like, you're going to be good because I'm good. I'm going to make sure you're good. 
you know, and we would have, you know, Matt, run me to the store. And I would go, yeah, come on. And we would have our little store runs and, you know, um, but I just remember like when they talk about, again, like it was interesting, like, cause you know, Nanny was the main one, like a name, like I'm not doing all this. Like, okay, like now it's, <laughs> like, it's getting ridiculous, right? But I think about like Hope's final moments and Nanny was the main one there, you know, right by her side. I mean, they were there when she passed. I mean, they were literally, they surrounded her um, in that room in Jersey City when she passed. But Nanny literally kicked everybody out that room and was like, it should mean not. And I'm, it's time for you to rest. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. for her to still be there for her transition in that way. Because um, it just didn't, it wasn't about how you identify what you were you are my niece you know what i mean like and you're not gonna leave this world not knowing that you were not loved or not feeling that you were not loved and i think that was the biggest part of like you said that story was a love letter from me to her but from my family to her um and to the world just to remind the world like you know you always got a chance to get it right like i, I think even up to the final moments, you always have a chance to get it right. And we didn't get it right all the time, but we were learning and figuring it out. But one thing about it, she didn't leave this earth not knowing that she wasn't loved and adored by her family. And now the rest of the world will know that she was loved and adored, you know, uh, by her family. And, and how they can do it better. And, and how to do it and how we do it better. Yeah. I think that I, it, I, like I said, it was healing to me and I loved well it. Done. Loved it. Well done. So tell me, what's next? What's next on your agenda? Next. Um, so the book is being adapted for TV with Gabrielle Union. So that's yes, exciting. I saw that. <laughs> exciting. It's exciting that Dwayne is excited. Like, I think that excites me more because like, it's like, that's Dwayne Wade, like superstar, you know, like NBA Hall of Famer, future. Like, you know, that's like, that's Dwayne Wade. Um, so it's dope that I'll get to work with them, you know, Gabby primarily because she optioned it and everything, but Dwayne is very involved. Like, I'm very happy, you know? Um, so we're working on that and working on the, uh, finding a co-writer so we can start, uh, getting the script written and start trying to shop it around to network so we can figure out a home for the show. Um, cause it has a lot of buzz and a lot of people are really, really excited about it. Uh, so I just signed another book deal. Um, so my next book draft is due next Friday. Oh. <laughs> I know it's like, they like, we need this like. You know, and like everybody, like, listen, like, where are the rest of the story? So I'm like, all right. Um, so the next book is called We Are Not Broken, which is primarily going to center Nanny raising the four of us. Um, like, even though my, I mean, clearly from the first book, my parents still together, still married, were there, they worked. And so the four of us, me, Raw, Rasul, and Garrett, were primarily with uh, Nanny being raised and learning all the traditions and the lessons and getting the ass whoopings and you know and watching her whoop other people ass and <laughs> so those stories are going to be in this book so you know she she beat up one of my aunts at a wedding at the end of the wedding but she come on nanny i live she beat up the white lady of the street one time because she uh hit rasul she um it like 
she beat up Roland Russell's parents in the projects um, one time before she, which which her, my uncle Roll, but she beat up their mother in the projects one time. And then uh, it was like a year later, she finally went to court and got custody of them. That's how they ended up in Plainfield. So the, the, the stories about like her, I guess I hate to say like her Medea side, but like, Medea <laughs> like, is not as fictional as people think. Like there are black women who who go who will ride out, and she is definitely one of those people who will ride out. As it should be. So those stories will be in there, plus the stories about like me, Raw, Russell, and Gary, and just like black boyhood, and like kind of like learning and journeying through like masculinity and identity, and um, all of those different type of things that we have to go through as black boys, right? Like um, having to talk. And all of those things about guns and, you know, you can't play outside with a toy gun. You can't, like, these are things that we actually do. Literally, I remember my dad, like, yeah, I can't go outside with a toy gun. And my dad was a cop. And so, you know, like, there was, there is no safety for a black child with a toy gun. Like, you, you know, like, that's a danger. But, like, really deep diving into that. Um, and it'll talk about, like, discipline and, like, uh, corporal punishment. Like, I really want to dive into, like, those type of topics. Like, we used to get beat with a switch, but you know, it it made sense for those times. Like that was an old Southern thing, but that's not okay. And you carry that shit with you. And so I want to talk about like, listen, like we got to stop those patterns. Like, because it, it doesn't always turn out great. Your kids don't always turn out okay. And, and punishment right. is not how you teach a child. And so like, it, it's going to really, really touch on those, I think those hard hitting issues. Um, mm -hmm in our community that we need to. And that's supposed to come out fall 2021. So I'm excited because that, that means like there will be another book out next year. So um, I'm happy about that. Um, what else am I working on? I got some other stuff I'm working on we can't talk about yet, but I'm excited about it. Uh, and I also, a lot of people, I guess don't remember that I announced this, but I'm actually working on a Stonewall graphic novel. Mm. And um, currently we're in the editing process of the graphic novel. Um, but I really do have high hopes that at some point myself and um, a few other- Please tell people, me that it's gonna include Stormy. Well, yes, yeah, so she's, yes. So yeah, like she Good. is the one who the first punch. And, and it's funny, I literally just had a conversation with my editor like, cause she was like, yeah, you know, there are some accounts where Stormy has, ah, Stormy, she, she's, she threw, she's throwing the first punch in this. I don't like, I don't care about what other accounts say. Marsha's throwing the first brick. Stormy's throwing the first part. Like, this is going to be our version of it. I don't give a shit what anybody else's version of it was. Um, but I'm doing this with the ultimate hopes that we can get a Stonewall something on TV that looks like what it's supposed to look like. That's not whitewashed. Right. Like, <laughs> that is very, very about what we was doing out there. And, yeah. um, you know... So that that that's all that I'm working on now. I mean, it's like, is that not enough? But <laughs> so yeah, I'm working on all of that and I'm excited and still hopeful that the book continues to do well. And you know, I got a few more things with the book, uh, All Boys Aren't Blue with, with the book coming up. And you know, it'd be nice if Oprah, you know, maybe. Come on, we can it out. Listen, like she, all it takes for her is to hold up the book and be like, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, to put the queer girls on the map, you know? I'm like, yes. yeah, it's about time. Like, I'm, I, I do wonder, I'm like, I don't know. I've never looked at her book club or looked at, but I'm like, has any like queer, like queer, queer book been picked, you know? So. 
probably yeah. somebody that they underplayed their queerness, like Angela Davis. <laughs> like somebody, you know, so you know how they underplay. Yeah, like where that wasn't like the focal point of the storytelling. Yeah. Um, so I'm hopeful for that. Like I, I'm still very, very hopeful that like you know maybe some celebs like be like y'all. Like I read this book like about what is like growing up like like y'all. This is interesting. Like I'm, I'm just hoping that some more high profile people pick it up and share it. Like you know what y'all like because really to be honest, if we really want to talk about it, yes. Well, I, I'm sure because I'm a queer person, I can tell you that this is this definitely hit hit it on the head. But even within the text there is another audience that this can mm -hmm. um, resonate with. It's, if you're trying to, I think even an interview that I, I, I listened to you say, you were like, you know, if you look at this book and say, boys, you blah, blah, and it, it makes you cringe. Yes. This is for you. you, you need to, uh, to watch this. You need to, you need to read this because this is literally for you. <laughs> it is. And that's when I, I wholeheartedly, feel that way and I've gotten certain like there have been a couple of like people who posted reviews that were heterosexual and were like I was reading it and at first I was like oh I can't do this and then they were like when I took a step back though it was because it was calling me out and it was making me think about shit that I had done too quick and it was like they were like I actually then started reading it more and then there were some queer people who were like at first I was like I can't or like this is like and then they were like, but you know what? It was because I had never challenged my own queerness or never fully accepted it. And so they were like, it was making me cringe, but it was making me cringe because I hadn't pushed myself to get there. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do hope that the, that the people that it may cringe keep picking it up and yeah. hopefully start talking more about it. Like, you know what? Like I read this and ordinarily I wouldn't read this type of shit, but you know, and I think we're, we're getting there. Like you look yeah. at Pose, a lot of heterosexual people watching Pose, like, wow, y'all lives are hard and interesting. And this is bad. And y'all, and y'all like, but y'all do it with a, like, I, don't, I, I tell people all the time, like to wake up as a queer person is like to wake up in a state of rage every day because you just don't know what the world is going to throw at you. We are already black. So we know the world gonna throw some shit at us, but then to be black and queer, we don't know what the world would throw at us. So like we just wake up in a state of rage. But even in our even in waking up in the state of rage, we still look fabulous doing it. Yeah. We still pull it together. Still pull it together. Off, snatch it up, pull it up, spin it out. <laughs> and there's something to be said about that type of resilience in the face of what we know we're gonna walk into every day. Yeah. Well, I am a super fan. I just hope you know. I love you. I love your work. I love, you know, just what you stand for. I love the things that you say. I love everything about you. So I'm going to be definitely in your corner supporting you. And I want to thank you for coming on Marsha's Plate and sharing your book. I am going to put the link um, for the book in the show notes so you can check it out. Definitely check it out. Go buy it. It is amazing. It's a beautiful queer memoir that you are just going to that's just going to touch your spirits just no matter who you are so thank you for joining me thank you so much you have a good, good rest, rest of your weekend we stuck in the house again child so. again <laughs> we think we're not getting covid right <laughs> <laughs> all right darling all right we good 
Well, that's it. Thank you for coming and getting a taste of Marsha's Plate. You can listen to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Make sure you leave a review because we really need those five stars, y'all. And go like our Facebook page and leave some comments. We will be posting exclusive content every Thursday, so you definitely don't want to miss out. You can also follow us on Twitter and any other social media site at Marsha's Plate. If you'd like to donate or advertise with us, hit us up at diamondstyles at gmail.com. That's diamondstylz at gmail.com. And that's it for us, y'all. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. You going to say bye, Mia? Oh, bye, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. Every little thing's going to be all right.